Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect, there are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Support for this podcast comes from the IT experts at CDW, people who get it. At CDW, we get the future workplace works differently. Today's my first day back. Almost forgot what floor we were on. Understandable. But with modern health and safety technology orchestrated by CDW, the future can work better. Technology like thermal screening and occupancy tracking enables employees to walk confidently into the office. Wait, this isn't my floor. Is this even my building? Even if it's been a while. IT orchestration by CDW. People who get it. Find out more at cdw.com slash work. Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to listen to the Waterline podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. People ask me all the time, Shane, what's the future look like? Are we going to flourish? Are we are we going to drive ourselves to extinction? Are we going to destroy everything? Are we going to create heaven on earth? A big part of that incredibly complicated question is water. Water is absolutely fundamental to life. And knowing what is going on with water, the various technologies, the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water around the globe is really fundamental to understanding questions like that. And if you guys are into science and learning about things that affect our lives and the world, which I know you are, I believe the Waterline podcast is for for you. I just finished a episode called Water for All Regulation all about comparing the different regulations in different areas like the Israeli water law passed in 1959 and comparing how their system of of regulating water compares to California's model of regulating and how We might work together to figure out the best pros and the cons of different systems all around the world. Very, very important stuff. Please check out the Waterline podcast on your Android app and at the iTunes store. Great episode for you guys today. I always try to prioritize information based on what i think will help people the most sometimes we have episodes that will uh just kind of uh embolden curiosity and then we have episodes like today that are not only interesting but really really will i believe have an impact on people's lives that's my hope anyway so i hope you enjoy it and i hope you listen at the end we have some very exciting news about the podcast are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre Welcome to the Here We Are podcast, everybody. Today I have a fantastic guest for you, professor of psychology at the University of Minnesota and author of the book, 
Secrets from the Eating Lab, The Science of Weight Loss, The Myth of Willpower, and Why You Should Never Diet Again. I think this is good news for a lot of us. Tracy Mann is joining me today. Hello, Tracy. Hi. Thanks for making time for uh, for this and, and being super flexible. We're, we're here in... Uh, I'm in Tracy's lovely home um, in, in Minneapolis, and and uh, you you should see uh, where I live, and you understand why I'm calling. We are it surrounded by you're, mess. You're such mess, a Midwestern mess. mom. That's oh, like God. a pretty clean house, and then you fr- freak out when uh, <laughs> when guests come over. There's a reason uh, we're out here <laughs> and not back there. Um, we we tried to get together last week, and uh, but we're here in the Midwest in the winter time, and it was making driving impossible. Yes, third time's the charm. <laughs> so let's talk. Uh, let's talk about your book. Um, first off, uh, number one, the, this is this is one of the more controversial um, parts of your book. I think that <laughs> uh, that uh, that is uh, people people are thinking. Never diet again. What kind of, you know, what kind of advice is that? Can you it's explain to advice. people <laughs> why, why you're against dieting? Absolutely. I mean, there's so many reasons to not diet. Um, <laughs> let's cover them all. Yeah. I mean, let's start with the first and most obvious reason, which is it doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, that you don't even need another reason once you have that reason, frankly. Right, right, we could right. just be done once we say it doesn't work, <laughs> but there's other reasons too. But let me at least. As listeners are turning you. off the podcast. <laughs> no, right. Well, that was a good 10 seconds. Yeah, no, 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 no. Let me, let me first <laughs> persuade fine. you that it doesn't work. And then we can talk about why and make people feel better. Because sometimes people are at the, at first, people take this as bad news that they shouldn't. But here's the deal. If you look at diets, what you find is that kind of any diet you go on, you can lose weight. And people do. People lose weight on weird, crazy-sounding diets. You know, cabbage soup, why is that a diet? My mom once was on something called the Snickers diet. She lost weight. You can lose weight on practically any diet. And for about six months, that's what happened. And what we did in my lab is we looked at all the studies of diets put together. And what we found, all the studies that looked at diets for the long term... And what we found is in the short term, people took off weight. But two problems. One is it wasn't enough weight. People lost about 10% of their starting weight. Just think about how not enough that is, right? Yeah. If you weigh 200 pounds, that's 20 pounds. But that's on average what people take off on a diet. But the problem is that they regain it. And nearly everybody regains it. And we'll talk about more as we go along, but regaining the weight you lost on a diet is practically a part of dieting. It's, you know what I mean? It's, it's a sort of expected, predictable result of dieting is the weight coming back. So people lose the weight on the diet in about six months, and then it comes back on. And by about three years after starting a diet, the majority of people have gained all the weight back. Um, so, so what is, what's necessarily the harm? And if, if, uh, if you still went six months, um, maybe being a, a little healthier and active perhaps, or, or feeling a little better, better about yourself for that six months, why, um, why sure. not be like, well, mm-hmm. that's, that's still a positive thing for six months. Yeah. So let me um, pull health out of there and leave that for a little bit later. Cause I want to address that very specifically. Yeah. But the, the rest of your question, I think, is, is reasonable, which is, you know, okay, fine. So I'll lose weight for six months. I'll regain it. I'll go on another diet, lose weight, 
regain it. And I understand that. And a lot of people do that. A lot of people live their life that way. Two reasons not to do that. One is that that's not fun. Like no one needs to be living their life that way, that those six months of the strict dieting are really unpleasant for people. And those six months of your life matter just like any other period of your life. So sort of setting those aside and saying, I'm going to suffer those six months so that I can have that lost weight, which will slowly creep back. And then I'll do it again. So, okay. So the first reason is that, and the second reason is it's actually bad for you. It's bad for you physically to lose and regain, lose and regain. People know that as yo-yo dieting. Right. In the sort of in the scientific literature, we call that weight cycling. And that is known to be bad for you. This so, was something yeah. that I thought was really interesting in your book, that the idea that that was actually um, a, a perhaps more harmful than just never having had diet and, and yeah. re- just stayed the same, a little overweight or whatever it might have yeah. been. Yeah, there's actually evidence for that. There's studies that show that you're better off health-wise, to stay at a stable heavyweight than to start at that heavyweight, lose weight, and regain it, lose weight and regain it. So that really argues for not dieting. Um, And another thing that I thought was uh, definitely counterintuitive, something or (laughs) certainly not obvious to me, certainly against what would be called quote unquote common knowledge, which isn't a thing that really exists, but, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, um, what would be most people's common perception is that obesity is this very unhealthy thing. And you made some interesting points in your, in your book about how mm-hmm. difficult it is mm-hmm. to really identify how unhealthy obesity is. That's right. And yeah. If it even is, is at all. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. We have been absolutely led to believe that obesity is, for certain, terrible for your health, um, and that obesity will lead to disease and early death. So, first of all, as you were sort of alluding, this is a hard question to study because you can't do what we call a true experiment. You can't randomly assign some people to get obese and others to not get obese and then follow them for the next 20 years and see who gets what disease. Right? That's not ethical. <laughs> it's be an nuts. interesting study. Yeah. It'd be a hard time finding uh, participants Nobody and wants keeping to them in be, some weird right? prison of like, right? you need I to know. stay fat. Yeah. So <laughs> when you can't do a true experiment like that, where people are randomly assigned to get fat or not, what you are left with is correlational studies, also called epidemiological studies. And what those studies do is they just look at people. They look at people who are fat and they look at people who are thin and they compare. And they compare how long they live. And the problem with that is that those studies cannot tell you anything about what causes what. Those studies can't tell you what obesity causes because you started with people who are already obese and who are already thin. And there might be differences between them at the get-go. And genetically. Yeah. There might be all kinds of differences between them that could be explaining (laughs) differences in health. Tracy Scott is is (laughs) trying to get in on the interview. Her cat has a lot to say. She literally put her face on the microphone. (laughs) Oh, Slinkala, come over here. Go over there. Go over there. I'm not going to make her go away because she'll just come back. That's okay. So we're going to let it go. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Um, So uh, what were we talking about? Um, so uh, how, how unhealthy is obesity and, and genetically, so, so say someone like you take someone like myself who is, um, 
who is genetically my whole if you if you meet my dad's side of the family is just as lanky as wow. I am just naturally my my little brother is probably a little uh, a little thinner than I am wow. even if you can believe is, that you, that is you, a possibility you need to not tell people this <laughs> you really, no one wants to so, hear it I know I know no one's it, happy it, for it, you it's it's funny because when I <laughs> I know I know it's funny because when I was a when I was a younger uh when I was a younger kid I got picked on a lot for Aww. for being um lanky but okay. but but now now as an adult to be like people used to make fun of me for being too skinny people are like screw you right right <laughs> um, and you could eat whatever you want right yeah. so so and then and then there's other people that have um uh, that might be genetically set up to their obesity may may very well run in their family yep. and you can take these these two people and and the their health might have nothing to do with their weight necessarily it might have been however their genes were set up in the first place sure there could be genetic differences at the start um, but there could also be differences that are related to being overweight but don't necessarily result from being overweight um, and those things could be causing the differences in health so there's lots of differences between obese people and uh, what they call normal weight people i hate using that but it's not the norm, right? It's right. less common than the norm, but whatever, we're going to use it. So there's lots of differences between obese and normal weight people that could be the cause of any health differences between obese and normal weight people. But they, researchers, scientists always blame their weight. So for example, one well-known, well-documented difference between obese people and non-obese people is in terms of exercise. So obese people are much more likely to be sedentary than non-obese people. And we already know how healthy exercise is and how unhealthy being sedentary is. So if you find a difference in lifespan, for example, between obese and non-obese people, it could be because of exercise. It could have nothing to do with their weight. Okay, but they always blame weight first. So you take someone lanky like me who can at times be quite a, a couch potato mm -hmm. and, and you pit me against a uh, heavier right. person who who is very very active mm -hmm. and and that that person might uh, i mean just uh, if you were to make a prediction that active heavier person is probably going to be a healthier absolutely individual. yeah fat and fit is better than thin and not fit mm -hmm. so yeah so it's i mean evidence like that really suggests that the issue isn't the weight per se um, but the other thing is that the evidence isn't that strong anyway, that there's a big difference in health between obese and non-obese. Aside from being more likely to get certain diseases, such as diabetes, which is serious, I'm not discounting that. But aside from that, you're not seeing differences that seem to matter in the long term. And by that, I mean, you're not seeing that obese people have a shorter lifespan than non-obese people, even though we're all led to think it's completely deadly. So as obesity has um, has gone up in this country or or the world, rates of uh, um, uh, life expectancy hasn't changed at all. It's actually a life expectancy goes up every year, and the rates of those diseases that everybody blames obesity on have not gone up as obesity's gone up. So that's also somewhat suspicious and hard to uh, hard to make sense of if you think obesity is this clear killer. 
Um, and there's tons of research on this where they compare the death rates of obese people to overweight people to normal weight people to underweight people. And I mean, tons of studies. And those studies overall show this very small effect of obesity on weight. In fact, you only see it when you take the very heaviest people and compare them to normal weight people. That's the only time you really see obese people having a shorter lifespan. And that's like the top 5% of the population in terms of obeseness. So like the 5% of people who are fattest, basically. That's who you might see the link between obesity and death. Otherwise, you don't. Mm. Uh, well, another thing that I uh, thought was, uh, I was just surprised to, that I'd never thought of before um, is, because there, there's a lot of talk these days kind of about fat shaming and that yeah. sort of thing, but 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 some of the effects of it that I had never thought of is is just the idea of um, heavier people being reluctant to go into a doctor's office yeah. because of how it, even even well-meaning people, even professional people, the the way that we kind of non-consciously think about or or often consciously think about mm -hmm. ob obese people. Um, causes us to behave towards them in certain ways that might um, uh, one hinder um, a doctor's ability to perform their task accurately, yeah, and and two definitely. they might they might end up a doctor might end up fat shaming an obese person. I I actually my girlfriend's a social worker and she's um, told me stories. She has this one client in particular that's obese and she's trying to get. Her a new doctor because when she goes to the doctor with this person, um, the doctor is just like, you know, this is just going to get harder for you if you just keep on being. Oh, and it's just she can't believe. And that's when she's there, a yeah, social worker, right, a right. government social worker is. So yeah, so this this really goes to show how how um, doctors might be treating some of these people when someone's not around to monitor, uh, monitor yeah. them. And it's just a one-on-one. -on -one. Absolutely. There's a lot of anti-fat attitudes out there. There's a lot of fat shaming out there. There's a lot of weight stigma out there. And unfortunately, if you look at research where they survey people about their anti-fat attitudes, you find that doctors have among the strongest anti-fat attitudes of any kind of profession. So, you know, they're almost the exact wrong people for obese people to want to go to mm. for help. Um, and what you see is doctors are very frequently are fat shaming obese patients. And like, so, for example, you'll have a fat person go into a doctor's office with a sprained ankle and the doctor will instantly try to blame it on their weight. Or, you know, you hear stories of someone going in with a sore throat and the doctor tries to blame it on their weight. So, I mean, you see this kind of thing all the time. And what that ends up happening is obese people are less likely to go to the doctor at all. Um, they're less likely to have continuity of care with a doctor because they go to a doctor, they don't feel comfortable with that doctor, they look for a different doctor, or they don't get care at all and end up in the emergency room. Um, so there's a lot of sort of aspects of dealing with the medical system that could lead obese people to have worse weight and it won't be because they're obese, right? They're not getting regular checkups because yeah. they don't want to be. Uh, they don't want to feel worse about themselves yeah. for for no reason. Yeah, and fat shaming has been shown to completely backfire. So if you fat shame someone, they're going to be less likely to exercise, and they're going to be more likely to overeat. So fat shaming exactly backfires. Does not do what 
So people who fat shame say they're doing it for the fat person's good. You know, I'm just giving them tough love. I'm just, but turns out it's not helping them at all. It's hurting. Well, this is, this is a larger problem of when we kind of put these stereotypes on others, they often will become self-fulfilling prophecies. If if you, if you say that a certain group of people isn't competent enough for something or, or is dangerous or whatever it might be, Mm -hmm. they, they end up believing that themselves and, and definitely. uh, Yeah. People sort of internalize these views that are all around them. You can't help but internalize views that are all around you. And there's, weight stigmatizing uh, and weight discriminatory uh, evidence all around us all the time. So you can, in fact, obese people are the group of people who are least likely to fight on their own for their own benefit. Normally people of a particular group have what they call an in-group bias, which is they favor their group over other groups, but you don't see that with obese people. Mm. I think they've just been so, um, you know, attacked for so long in so many ways that are so deep and personal that they took it in, they internalized it. And so they're not fighting for themselves. Well, the brain needs to do these self appraisals and uh, one one way to get information about kind of understanding yourself is from the environment. And if you're in an environment where people have these biases here, yeah, yeah, of course you would internalize them. And with that said, I mean, to be fair, there's a lot more um, fat acceptance movement type stuff going on now than there used to be. Right. Yeah, so um, which is good. So let's talk about the yeah. the, uh, the food lab because uh, you you have a really, uh, really interesting um, lab and do some really cool, fun studies. Thank you. We like to have fun. That is often the goal or the side goal. Yeah, well, what what is so talk about what is the food lab and can you share kind of the origins of it and and um, basically what you do? Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, it's the eating lab, not the oh, food they, lab. They, they eat, sorry, sorry. Uh, they, no they're eating. I'm looking at the title right now: secrets from the eating lab. And uh, yeah, they right. That's right there in the title. Um, yeah. So it's the eating lab, and it's really just where I mean every researcher has a space that they refer to as their lab, and that's just where uh, we do our studies. And our studies in the lab tend to be about people's eating habits, and in particular, um, what makes them overeat and what helps them not overeat, and um, you know things like that. So we bring dieters into the lab a lot and expose them to some tempting food and see what happens. Um, and the goal in those kinds of studies, at least for like the first 10 years I was doing this, the goal of those kinds of studies was to find something that if you um, expose the dieter to some tempting food, this thing would stop them from overeating it. So we were always looking for like what would help someone resist a milkshake, basically. Mm. And just, I guess, to summarize those 10 years of research, probably more, summarize those 15 years of research, basically... Nothing helped dieters resist food, and everything made them more likely to eat it. So, you know, no, nothing helps, basically. If you're a dieter and trying to resist food, nothing's going to help. Well, Sorry. <laughs> I made that sound really kind of sad and depressing. It's not as bad as it sounds. Well, uh, yeah, because there, there's things like... Um, uh, People that do have a have a milkshake in in your lab might later on in the day 
do a bit of self-regulation and and balance that out by eating less calories throughout the rest of the day than that's they, true people we have seen that people can compensate later in the day although the the common finding and what everyone talks about is that they if you have a dieter and you have them drink a milkshake for scientific reasons what they'll do right after that is overeat you give them some ice cream right after that milkshake they'll eat a lot Whereas if you hadn't had them have that milkshake and you give them ice cream, they won't eat a lot because why would they eat a lot? They're on a diet. Mm. But if you have them drink the milkshake and then offer them ice cream, they eat a lot. And it's because, well, they blew it. So why not? Why not eat a lot of ice cream? You know, the diet's ruined for the day. So they call that the what the hell effect. Yeah, that what the hell effect applies to all sorts of <laughs> that's not that's not uh, just sure. eating. It could okay. be alcohol and partying and uh, whatever it might be. That's yeah, true. Have a that few drinks. Then, yeah. Yeah. Um, so can you talk about some of these studies? So how does it work? Use like a specific study and, and someone comes into the into the lab and you offer them a milk. What What kind of. Uh, tasks are why do people sure. think that they're there oh sure um well i'll describe the first eating study i ever did with uh, my grad school classmate andrew ward um one of the first studies i ever did ever um all we did was try to distract them so we brought dieters into the lab exposed them to and uh, sometimes we used a milkshake but i think in those we used chips and cookies and stuff um but so we'd bring them in expose them to food and then we'd either distract them or not distract them. And we would distract them by having them do some silly task, like looking at slides of paintings. I think that's one we use. Sometimes we have them um, track numbers in their head or something or hold the number in their head, things like that. So what do we tell them? It depends on which of those things we're having them do. But um, we often tell them just exactly backwards of what we're looking at. So we often say we're interested in how eating this food, eating this sugar, affects your ability to remember these slides. But really what we care about is whether distracting themselves with slides affects how much sugar they eat. So does that make sense? So it's sort of, yeah. so we tell them the exact opposite. And what they don't know is that we're going to measure how much they ate. Um, they also don't know that we even care about how much they ate. Like they think the food is there as this sort of side issue that, um, you know, to help with setting up either a test of sugar or, um, or sometimes they think the food is just there because we're nice and we're just offering them food, which is super cool of us. Um, yeah, scientists are the nicest. So, nice. <laughs> so we have a study actually where we um, wanted to see how friends influenced each other's eating. Mm. And we brought them in and offered them lovely plates of cookies while we had them do something that we did not care about at all. Um, that something was like solving a problem together. Um, but before we had them do that, we were thoughtful and gave them these nice cookies to enjoy while they did it. You know, so they didn't know that what we cared about was how many of those cookies they ate. They thought what we cared about was the thing we told them to do and the thing we told them we cared about, which was solving this problem. Hmm. So it's very fun to... Uh, lie to people and uh, get away with it. Uh, Although we own up to it at the end. Yeah. We are required to. Uh, yeah. um, and we do. So yeah. <laughs> ethically speaking, it's uh, the what, right thing to do. What are, what are people's reaction? Are they like, 
How dare you? You well, tricked me with that milkshake. So, you know, we don't um, tell them the way you might let someone in on a secret on like a reality show. Right. We're not like, ah, tricked you. We just, you know, first we say, look, you know, we're social psychologists. Right. And if we were to tell you exactly what we were studying, you wouldn't behave your normal way. You'd be really self-conscious. So because of that, we didn't tell you what we really cared about. And in fact, in this case, what we cared about actually was how much you ate, given that we um, had you work on that problem together or whatever. Um, and so we sort of ease them into it that way. So we're not making fun of them. And we also explain that, you know, their data is, you know, about to be a number in a computer that's going to be smushed together with a lot of other people's numbers. Their names are not there. So we try to, you know, make sure people understand that, you know, we're not tricking not the with them. Show. We're not trying to... Yeah, we're not trying to trap them or anything. We just need to, you know, make sure that they can behave naturally. And they won't if they know what we're looking at. Let's talk about distractions. Yes, absolutely. Let's talk yeah. about distractions. What does uh, what is the role of distractions in people's eating habits? Well, so what we kept finding in those studies was that distraction led people to overeat. So, well to be fair, led dieters to overeat. So if you're trying not to eat too much and I distract you, you're going to end up overeating. And we're not completely sure why. Um, it could be because you kind of lose track. If you're distracted, you kind of can't pay attention to how much you're eating. And so you lose track and you overeat. Um, or maybe when you're um, distracted, you forget that you're even trying to not overeat. And so you overeat. We're not quite sure why, but it's pretty clear that distraction leads dieters to overeat. Now, if you're not dieting and I distract you, you'll probably eat less because you're busy with what we're distracting you with and you have no sort of dieting rule to forget, to forget to obey. So non-dieters are fine with distraction, but if you're trying to control your eating, distraction could mess you up. So watching TV while you eat, you'll probably eat more. So is there any way in which that you can use distractions to to help you if if uh if if say you're you're trying to um avoid uh, say say you go into work and you know that every Tuesday there's a big thing of muffins out or whatever uh, for everybody and you know that you're going to be smelling them and they're going to be in your face for the first two hours of your day. Is there any way that you can use distraction instead to kind of stop thinking, get your mind off of tempting foods? Well, I mean, in that circumstance, I would say the best thing to do would be to sort of rearrange your day to sort of do some planning ahead so that you're not going to be in the room that those muffins are in. Um, so that you'll have something to eat with you so that you won't be hungry when those muffins are near you. Um, so I would say to use planning more than um, a distraction strategy. Although Andrew and I did one time in a study show that distraction could help dieters, but it, it was hard to make it happen. But if we distracted dieters from their milkshake um, by putting a ton of dieting messages all around them, like a, there was a pile of diet books and um God, posters, and I forget what else. Oh, a scale was right next to them. In that case, distraction didn't lead them to overeat. They actually were able to stick to their diet. So there's certain circumstances in which distraction could help. But for the most part, what you experience when you're out in the world trying to eat or not eat um, is not going to be the circumstances that will help. 
when you're out in the world, it's going to be the circumstances that totally mess you up. Uh, and we live in a more and more distracting <laughs> world, yes. too. Yeah. Um, and more and more temptations all around us. Is there is there any way of tracking the effectiveness of diets over time? Like, ha- have were there things that used to work slightly better that as the world's become a more distracting place, m- much like as That's obesity rates have gone mm-hmm. up, you know, mm-hmm. the, the same sort of thing. It, That's interesting. I, gosh, I've never looked at it that way. So what you would want to do is take the same diet and look at people who were on it 30 years ago and compare it to that same diet with people on it now. Yeah. Um, You'd think that would be possible to do with sort of a known diet like Weight Watchers, but Weight Watchers changes its plan all the time. So you wouldn't even be able to compare. Uh, A while, actually. So maybe you could. I mean, I could actually do that looking at studies that I already have sort of Hmm. studied um, to see what happens and just look at them in that different way, like sort of based on the chronology over time instead of just same kind of diet versus other kinds of diets. Yeah. Well, I was just yeah, curious. That's I, clever. I'm, uh, that. <laughs> you need to come uh, join the lab and uh, convince us to do these things. This is, uh, this is why I do this podcast is basically, I'm just applying for backup. For <laughs> if comedy doesn't work out for me. So okay. I can, so I can be a research assistant or something. Highly lucrative career <laughs> idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, oh, I've seen all these wealthy research assistants uh, right. uh, around on on MTV's cribs and, and <laughs> all that. Yeah, drenched in jewels. <laughs> um, <laughs> so something that I am very, very, very interested in, and that I haven't gotten to talk about nearly enough on the podcast, um, not, not near as much as I would uh, I, I'd love to, and and. Um, I also like the idea of talking about it specifically in terms of uh, of eating and obesity is mm-hmm. stress in the stress okay. response system. We, my listeners, um, I, I would say we haven't really even had the basics um, set up because it's not something that we've been able to talk too much about. Um, so, uh, if you could talk just a little bit about how okay. how much stress affects obesity, uh, attempting to diet, uh, eating habits. Sure. Well, first of all, stress itself affects every system of the body. Right. So the stress response sets into action um, a lot of different um, sort of chains of events um, that ultimately can lead to problems in all different systems of the body. So um, part of the stress response can mess up your immune functioning. Another part of the stress response can mess up your cardiovascular response over time. And the reason stress can lead to these problems is because the stress response, that sort of heart-pounding reaction that you have when you're under stress, was never meant to happen over a long period of time or so often. That really, it seems to have evolved. This is Robert Sapolsky's argument that that's evolved to help people respond to a quick-on, quick-off stressor, like a fight-or-flight thing, like a, you know, like a, beast chasing you you mobilize this energy let's not worry about the digestion system right now let's just run and get the heck out of here or or fight for our lives and so everything that helps you mobilize kicks into gear and everything that doesn't slows down or turns off 
And so each of those leads to different kinds of problems. Um, so when it comes to dieting, the big problem is that glucose is rushing out of your um, out of your blood cells to help you to fuel movement away from the mastodon that's chasing you. And um, so if there isn't a creature chasing you, there that glucose isn't, doesn't have anywhere to go. You're sitting there on your couch, so it's actually not needed to move your muscles around. So it's got nowhere to go. And so what it ends up doing is going to your belly, becoming that kind of abdominal fat, which is so unhealthy. You're just sitting there at the at the dinner table looking over your bills for the month and yes. thinking about your 401k or your children's uh, tuition or the, the new the, president uh, and what, uh, it, right. <laughs> what he's going to do to us. Yes. And so you have a big stress response, right. but that's not what it, that's not how that's not what it evolved for. Right. And so the problem is we keep running it over and over and over. And so it leads to wear and tear on your body in all different ways, especially your heart. If you think about it, because you're constantly, you know, getting your blood pressure up um, and, you know, and, uh, well, there's That's all sorts of systems to dial yeah. it down after after you have after you've used if you're using the stress response system correctly. There's a whole nother cascade of hormones that's released to kind of dial dial everything back to normal. But but because we're not allowing ourselves to dial down, this is right. Uh, we just keep running it and running it. And so when it comes to eating, the one part of that that matters a lot is the release of the hormone called cortisol. That's called that people call that the stress hormone mm -hmm. and cortisol messes up your diet for the reason I just explained that um, it's going to lead ultimately after a chain of events to this increase of belly fat, um, which you don't want. So um, stress messes up your diet. Now, Janet Tomiyama, who's over at UCLA and is the expert on stress and eating or in, and especially stress and dieting, she showed that, a bigger problem is that dieting itself causes that stress response. Right. So it's not that if you diet, you should try to reduce your stress, which I mean, you always should try to reduce your stress. But the problem is the diet itself is causing the stress, which right. then will ultimately undermine the effectiveness of the diet. And that's one reason why diets don't work in the long run. We talk a lot about evolutionary mismatches on this uh, on this program. It's something that uh, uh, listeners really respond. Well, it's something that I am obsessed with. Well, this and, is the perfect example of that is dieting itself as an evolutionary mismatch. Yes, right? be, because when you're talking about the idea of, of losing, I mean, dieting is just something that you wouldn't, our hunter-gatherer ancestors yeah. weren't going on diets. We did not they weren't watching their to, weight. to lose weight or to diet on purpose. Yeah, so if your body detects that not enough calories are coming in um, or that you've dropped weight, it it doesn't think, oh, yay, she's getting thinner and is going to look good in that swimsuit. Your body thinks, uh-oh, this person's in danger of starving to death. There must be a famine or you know, or something like that. So, so when not enough food comes in, your body actually has all these different physiological changes, which are good if you want to stay alive, but are bad if you want to keep weight off. So just to give some examples right. of those, um, one thing that happens when not enough calories are coming in is your, there's neurological changes. So you actually become overly focused on thoughts of food. 
You're more likely to notice food if it's there. You can't take your attention away from food if it's there. You're like, yep, sure. I, everyone knows that that happened. No, well, right. I, oh, I wanted yeah. you to talk about the the studies where the the uh, the people were volunteered to be starved for oh, the Minnesota uh, Starvation Study. How, yeah. how many days was it or whatever? That like was six months. Yeah, six months. Well, if we're talking about the same study, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the conscientious yeah. objectors. Yeah. yeah, for six months, they allowed themselves to be starved so that the researcher Ansel Keys could study the effects of starvation they on were eating every aspect of the hardly human. at all. Well, it's actually interesting. Um, they had actually 1,600 calories a day, mm-hmm. which to most people, that sounds like plenty. Um, but in that time, um, in their lives, that wasn't plenty. That was about 40% of the amount of calories they normally ate. So these guys lost a ton of weight. Um, and one of the most noticeable side effects as they were losing the weight was they became absolutely obsessed with thoughts of food. Like that's all they did was talk about food, dream about food, read books about food. They would go to the library and take out cookbooks. These are men in the 1940s who presumably never had cooked in their life. Right. Um, they started, you know, clipping recipes from the paper and making plans of what they would cook later when they could eat more. Um and it's really making the only big thing, plans to become yeah. chefs and study yeah. food. And Someone, yeah, a lot of people like change their career ideas <laughs> from that. Like one guy's like, "I'm going to be a farmer, so I'll always have food accessible." Um, someone's going to own a grocery store. There were so many um, food focused things. I don't know if many of those came to fruition. Uh, they, they may have. I mean, this this is something when when we talk about. Um, I mean. I think this is another thing that that is at least heading in a little bit the right direction as far as kind of the sort of fat shaming thing goes. But but the idea of that this is all just personal responsibility and why don't you just stop eating so much fatty? Yeah. But you can you can take someone that can have you can pit me against someone who is eating on a diet the exact same amount of food that I eat regularly. My, mm-hmm. uh, I have a just a naturally pretty small um, stomach. I am, don't. I think eating is Again, overrated. Stop telling uh, people this. I know, I no know. one wants to hear it. <laughs> but um, <laughs> <laughs> have you noticed that no one wants to hear that? I know. I like to. I like to ruffle feathers. Excellent. Um, <laughs> Then use that. Uh, but it's a good example of you can take what is a normal amount of calories for me as opposed to someone that would be, say, sure. half the amount of calories that they're that they're used to having, but they're trying to stick with it. Um, and just the kind of physiological um, or, or psychological mm-hmm. responses that they will have and physiological, yeah. the, the amount of it, it, once you're once you start losing fat, it's it's kind of sending <laughs> releasing yeah. hormones, telling your brain like. What the hell is going on yeah. out there? We need food. We're starving. Yeah. We're going to die. Exactly. So, um, exactly. So, let's unpack that a little bit. So, right. yeah. So, exactly. So, when your body thinks that you're starving and, is, and your body thinks you're maybe in danger of dying, it makes all these changes. So, one of them is those thought changes that we talked about. You become preoccupied with thoughts of food. And whenever I talk to dieters and say that, they're like, oh, yeah, that happens. That happens to me. I thought that was just me being a loser, you know, to only want to think about food once I was dieting. But actually, no, that's a a predictable uh, result of dieting. They were losers for other reasons. (laughs) No, no, no. No, That's not okay. Um, So, uh, okay, so there's these neurological changes that make you think about food, that make it 
hard to stop that make you notice it more. There's also neurological changes that make food more reinforcing. So you get a bigger reward response when you eat food, a bigger kick of reward. Um, So think about now trying to continue losing weight when your thought patterns have changed that way. That makes it harder. You know, if there's a food near you and you've lost weight and your thought patterns have changed that way, it's going to be much harder to resist that food. The same is true with the hormone changes that happen when your body thinks you're starving to death. Hormones that their job is to make you feel full, those hormones, you know, less of them start coming out. And so it's harder to feel full. You actually have to eat more to feel full than you used to have to eat to feel full. So um, again, there's tempting food near you and you're hungrier than you should be. That's going to make it harder to resist that food. Um, so that's another kind of change. And then your metabolism changes. And I think you were getting at this and in, in mm-hmm. you were saying before. So your metabolism changes to save your life, to save you from starving to death. And the way it changes is it makes it so that you can survive on fewer calories than you used to. And what that means is if you eat the same number of calories that you used to eat, which would lead you to lose weight, now you're not going to lose weight from that same small number of calories. Your energy storage system is kind of becoming thriftier and yeah, greedier. Yeah, exactly. Way. Yeah. So um, that makes it harder to keep losing weight. That leads to that plateau that, again, all dieters say happens. And it also messes you up psychologically. You're like, what has happened? I've, you know, I'm tr- this was working. Now it's not. What am I doing differently? Um, the problem, I think, with all these things is that when dieters lose weight in the beginning part of their diet, they credit the diet itself. Not They don't credit their own abilities. They credit the diet itself. But when they start to regain, they blame themselves. They think they're doing something wrong because suddenly they can't stop thinking about food. Suddenly they're so hungry they can't resist food. You know, suddenly whatever they eat, they seem to gain weight. They blame themselves for that when really all those things are happening because of these physiological changes that your body does to keep you from starving to death. That are insanely complicated, that people are poorly informed about and hardly anyone knows anything about really outside of people like yourself. and and Yeah, people don't. I mean, that's the single reason why I wrote this book is so that people would understand that, that um, these changes are a predictable result of dieting, that these are things that are going to happen if you go on a diet and they're going to make it harder to keep that weight off, harder to stick with that diet um, and make your life really unpleasant. So to, to simplify things, say, okay. say you go Sorry. on a, no, 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 a, no, no, this is like, I have a very smart audience. They're keeping okay. up just fine. I, of course they but are. but I I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just, just to make sure that I'm understanding okay. this clearly enough. Okay. Um, so say you take someone that's, 250 pounds or something like that and which is however so they're however much overweight and then you put them on some calorie diet like i don't know 2000 calories a day or or, or something like that Mm -hmm. and they do start to lose weight so they go great all i have to do is just stick to this 2000 calorie a day and i will keep and this weight will just keep on melting off Mm -hmm. the way that it has been but that's just simply not the case that's simply not the case um partly because um, well, mainly because of this metabolic change that I talked about. Um, so your your body will get better at making use of calories and keeping you alive. So those calories, more of them will start to be stored as fat uh, because they won't be needed to keep you alive, partly because your metabolism changes 
to protect you and partly because your metabolism also changes if you weigh less. So when you weigh less, you know, you need fewer calories to run your body. So those two things happen together when you um, purposely lose weight. And so what it adds up to is eating the same amount of calories that you were using at the beginning of your diet doesn't work anymore. You have to keep lowering it. Well, it's horrible. It's cruel. <laughs> it's so unfair. It is. It is uh, evolution's unfair. Um, <laughs> Um, and so, so let's, let's, (laughs) let's brighten, uh, let's brighten the mood a little bit. Let's, let's talk about some of the positive findings that, that, um, of, of yours. Let's talk about some of the hope that there is out there. Some, some of, some of the things that can work that, that people can make changes that, have been shown to, and yeah. and, and well, I'm not just talking about weight loss or whatever. I'm I'm also talking about being, uh, um, having a healthier outlook toward sure. these things. Well, and one thing I want to say before that, sure, um, because I do think it's good news. Um, although it wasn't exactly what you asked me for, um, okay. but one thing that is not the reason why people's um, weight is coming back when they lose it on a diet. Um, because most people, when weight comes back, they blame it on their willpower. Right. They say, oh, God, I could have kept it off, but my willpower is crappy. You know, oh, if only I had better willpower, um, I would have kept it off. And so people are always blaming themselves. And also people blame other people, you know, who regain weight. They say, oh, your willpower is bad. You just blew it. You could have done this, but you're too weak. Um, well. I think what's interesting about that is a lot of these people might have actually had more willpower than, say, someone of the same weight that never tried to go on a diet. Absolutely. They just use that willpower toward the wrong task in the wrong direction, which is the importance of this information and understanding the kind of research that you're doing and just informing yourself in general so that so that you can so that you can know the most effective things to do when you are mustering up this willpower. Stuff. Yes. So I'll give you some things to do instead of trying to use willpower. But first, let's just think about why willpower doesn't work with diets, because it really doesn't. Um, And the problem really is that there's too many things we have to resist. And resisting each of those things needs to happen too many times. So, for example, um, I always use this example, but you're at work and some nice um, colleague of yours comes in with a box of donuts and puts it on the desk, and you're having a meeting, and there's these donuts on the desk, and you're trying to resist the donuts, so you say, no, thank you, none for me, and you don't take one. You know, yay, that's great. That is one very impressive act of willpower right there. Kudos. Problem is you're not done yet. You are not out of the woods yet. Every time you look over and notice that donut, you're going to have to resist it again. So resisting one donut is not one act of willpower. It could be 20, 30 acts of willpower. You know, if you look over every minute, if it's in your line of sight, you're going to have to resist it over and over and over and over. And if you do that successfully 20 times, but on the 21st time you blow it and eat the donut, you you showed really good willpower. You know, 20 out of 21 times successful. That's a pretty impressive uh, average there, right? But it doesn't matter because any one mess up in willpower erases all that success. And now you don't have your willpower for, for other tasks. Yeah, and now it's blown. So um, so if, you know, all you needed to, for, if all you needed to lose weight was to resist each food you encounter one time, I think people's willpower might matter. Mm-hmm. 
um, and differences between people's willpower might matter. If you have five single acts of willpower per day, maybe differences between people's willpower would matter. But since you have more like 500 acts of willpower a day, you know, your willpower has to be incredibly good, nearly perfect, if it's going to survive that. And, you know, people aren't nearly perfect. I mean, people are people. Mm. So, um, so what ends up happening is you have a few failures of willpower and that you end up eating as much as if uh, you weren't even trying to resist the food. So willpower basically is the wrong tool. So you don't want to rely on willpower to, um, to eat less. Um, and the problem, the added problem is if you think about how hard willpower is once you've been dieting and your body has switched into that starvation mode where it thinks um, that you're starving to death, and makes all those changes we talked about. So once um, your thinking process changes, willpower is even harder because now you're thinking about food all the time. Once your hormones change and you're hungrier, willpower willpower is even harder. It's harder to resist when you're hungrier. Once your metabolism changes, willpower is even harder. Um, so willpower, not only is it not a good tool to begin with, but it's an especially bad tool once you've been dieting. So it's, it's just especially bad when you more need it most. More. Well, they, yeah. uh, when you talk about, say, uh, having the willpower to turn a piece of food down five times or whatever, but once all these changes happen, now this thought's popping it's in your harder. head 50 yeah. times. Yeah. So now you're having to use 10 times the amount of willpower exactly. for the same task. So willpower basically has gotten harder when you needed it most. Which is unfair. And so it leads to overeating. You end up eating more than you want to. And it's not because your will is weak. It's because you, you're trying to resist food in a physiological context, in a psychological context that makes it extra hard. Right. And that is different than trying to resist food if you haven't been dieting. So now that we've all forgiven ourselves for our many failings, <laughs> so it's not your fault. Let's talk right. about some uh, uh, some things that we we can do. Sure. So, I mean, one thing I would say is to think about the goal. You know, for a lot of people, the goal is to lose a certain amount of weight and look a certain way, and that I really wish that people would alter that goal and not aim for such a large amount of weight loss. Um, you know, we need to stop sort of falling for that perfect slim weight ideal that we see paraded around us all the time. Um, and what we need to do is just aim for a weight that's healthy for us. And a weight that's healthy for you is going to be based on the weight that your body wants you to be at. Um, which is sort of your set weight or your set weight range, which is a range of weights that your body genetically tries to keep you in um, by making some of those changes to hormones and to thinking and all that. So, um, so if I would encourage people to not try to live below that set weight range that they have when you're, when you lose weight so that you're below that range that your body wants you in, all those changes happen that make it harder to resist food. So what I encourage people to do instead is to try to aim to live at the lower end, but within that range. Mm -hmm. So the lower end of your set weight range. Um, and that's a place where you can be perfectly healthy, where it's not that hard to get there. You don't have to do crazy dieting to get there. Um, it's not that hard to stay there. Um, and 
you know, the problem is that maybe is still a heavier weight than you've dreamed about. Um, but that's what I want people to try to come to terms with. Well, also, weight might not be the best tool for for measuring um, one's health. If you right. Are, if you are right. if you are exercising a lot and gaining muscle, which yeah. is denser, um, maybe a better thing to do would be to measure yourself, which is going to affect how you look anyway, which is all you're really after. Um, may, maybe kind of jumping off the scale and um, setting some other ways of measuring your goals. Yes, exactly. So separate that body image goal from that health goal. They're totally separate things. Um, you know, there's ways to deal with the body image goal, uh, other ways to deal with the health goal. Let's talk about the health goal. Um, and, you know, just what you've been saying, people are always surprised when I say this, but it's true. Doing healthy stuff makes you healthy, even if it doesn't make you thin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the crucial thing that people need to remember. So if you engage in exercise, if you work to reduce the stress in your life, if you eat a generally sensible diet, um, your health will improve, but your weight might not change. Um, And, you know, once you're doing those healthy things, that's the right weight for you. Whatever you weigh when you're doing those three healthy things, you're fine. And anyone who says you're not fine, don't trust them because what they're doing is getting caught up in your weight. Uh, you know what I mean? They're just assuming that the weight is what defines health or not. But it's not. It's the behavior that mm-hmm. defines health or not. Um, so, yeah. So Just, I, just being more active just, in dude, general. Yeah. And to just eat sensibly, um, which does not mean dieting, does not mean restricting your income, income, does not mean restricting your intake. Yeah. <laughs> um, but just means really trying to get more of a variety into your diet to not... Um, you know, overeat certain food groups um, and to get more vegetables in there. So my lab has actually been making efforts to try to help people eat more vegetables because that's the healthiest thing that people are not doing. Um, And if you eat more vegetables, at least one of our studies have shown this, and I assume there's others out there I haven't actually checked. Um, But if you eat more vegetables, you will almost certainly eat fewer calories overall. Um, so how, how have you found to uh, prime people to get more, sure. eat more vegetables? So our favorite strategy for eating more vegetables is what we call veggies first um, or get alone with a vegetable. And the strategy is basically eat a vegetable before you have any other food on your table, um, before there's any other food on your plate. So eat a vegetable just totally on its own. And the reason for that is once a vegetable is on your plate next to something yummy, it loses right? It loses that contest. You know, you're going to pick the spaghetti, not the vegetable. And so this strategy is putting, so right, you have to resist something there. You have to resist the spaghetti to eat the vegetable. Um, We don't want you to have to resist things. We don't want you to have to use willpower. So to do that, we have to put the vegetable in a contest that it can win, that it's the favored choice. And that competition is vegetable versus nothing, you know, or or (laughs) vegetable versus starving. Right. So order the salad first. Exactly. So have the salad first or have the broccoli for whatever it is. Eat it first. You're at your hungriest. It's the only thing there. You'll eat it. My kids did when they were very small. Um, They ate a giant bowl of sauerkraut that they put on our table at a restaurant one time instead of pickles. Um, And the kids were little, but they were hungry and it was there. And so they ate it, even though ick. No one normally eats a bowl of sauerkraut no and with their fingers that was gross <laughs> they, that 
It was, yeah. So, yeah. So eat your vegetable first so that it doesn't have to lose that competition. Um, and then in general, um, strat- strategies that we've tested, and we did test that vegetable strategy with kids in elementary school cafeterias. We gave them a vegetable before they went to the cafeteria to eat. And, you know, five times as much vegetable was eaten. So, you know, it definitely works. Um, so try that. And it's painless. Mm-hmm. What um, about um, something like portion size? Yeah. So portion sizes have gotten insane. Mm-hmm. So bring those back to reasonable. I'm not saying don't eat anything. And in fact, I'm specifically not saying to forbid certain foods. The second you forbid yourself from having a certain food, all you do is want it more. You know, all you do is start thinking about it like crazy and wanting it more. Um, and so that backfires. So you don't forbid yourself from eating certain foods, but instead allow yourself those foods, but just try to eat a sensible amount of those foods. So one strategy we use to try to eat a more sensible amount of foods is to put some obstacles between ourselves and those foods because people are very lazy, we are, and obstacles stop us or at least slow us. So there's research from um, the Netherlands showing that if you um, have a bowl of M&Ms and it's right there by your hand, you'll eat a lot of them. But if you move it five feet across the room, you'll eat half as many. Mm. Uh, that's an obstacle. You have to stop what you're doing. You have to get out of your chair. You have to walk over there. That same study also showed that even a much smaller obstacle will slow a person down. So they, instead of putting the bowl of M&Ms across the room, they put it just two feet across the table so that instead of reaching directly into the bowl, you had to actually extend your arm to reach yeah. into the bowl. That is a small obstacle. Yeah. You know, ooh, I have to straighten my arm. Still, they ate half as much. They ate as much as if it was five feet across the room. Sure, I like M&Ms, but I'm not going to reach for them. Right, God forbid. Right. So, so, you know, so that leads you to eat half as many M&Ms. And people are like, but they still ate M&Ms. Yeah, sure. You mm. should still eat M&Ms if you like M&Ms. Um, just you shouldn't eat a ton of M&Ms. So this strategy helps you eat less, but not none. People are now going to eat more M&Ms today now that we've... <laughs> <laughs> now that we've mentioned M&M's. I think that's okay. Again. It's funny. We use M&M's in a lot of our studies because I don't like M&M's. Mm. So, you that know, my lab you. is like the house of temptation. Right. You know, so it really helps if like M&M's are the only candy in there because they, they don't tempt me. Mm. So, And that actually is uh, actually a crucial aspect of all the strategies. So I have 12 strategies in the book. And the thing that unites them all is that they don't rely on willpower. Because willpower is a bad tool. It's not going to work. So all these strategies instead aim to make it so that you never need willpower. Um, So they involve, you know, keeping yourself away from where food might be or making food less noticeable wherever it is um, or making the healthy stuff more noticeable so that you're more likely to eat the healthy stuff. So removing obstacles between yourself and healthy stuff. Well, it also makes me think of the the opposite of say, I want to exercise more that just trying to do more push-ups and sit-ups in my life is going to be a whole lot easier than being like, I'm going to go to the gym every day. That's a whole lot of Mm. obstacles to get myself to the gym. But if I can just roll out of bed and do some push-ups, that doesn't take near as much willpower. That's true. The fewer obstacles, the better. Right. There's absolutely no question about it. It's practically a, one of the tenets of social psychology. Mm-hmm. You know, is, uh, people will go where it's easy to go. People will do what it's easy to do. 
So just as we're as we're wrapping up, can you just run down um, the list just so just so to give people a preview because I want everyone to go and buy this book, Secrets from the Eating Lab. The uh, did, what did you say? Ten different strategies. There's twelve. Well, I'm sure I can't remember them. Um, as uh, many the as you can, head. as many as you can think um, of. I'll, I'll I usually tell head. people two and then tell them to get the book to look at the rest. But <laughs> sure. um, uh, and I can't remember how they're categorized. So I mean. I mean, they're in categories. So there's some that have to do with putting up obstacles between yourself and tempting food. And there's some that have to do with removing those obstacles between yourself and um, healthy food. Uh, There's some that have to do with who you eat with. Um, And in particular, they recommend eating with friends who have healthy eating habits um, because they tend to rub off on you. And we actually did really fun studies in the lab showing that that happens. Um, so, and I'm not saying to dump your unhealthy eating friends. Just go to the movies with them. Like, don't eat your meals with them. Um, let's see. There's a strategy about having other people in your household try to eat in a more healthy way along with you. Because if you're doing it alone, you're going to encounter temptation all the time, things you kind of don't want to be eating. Um, there's strategies about reasons for eating healthy food. So you don't want to eat healthy food because it's healthy. Because the second you call a food healthy, it suddenly sounds yucky. Yeah, right? that's that's so interesting. The the what what about like diet soda? You mean the word diet? Does yeah, the diet yeah, make yeah. it sound yucky? It probably does. Yeah, we we the word we tested was healthy, but mm. I bet the word diet makes it sound yucky too. Mm. It's doing it to me right now. That's, <laughs> it's having that effect on me. It sounds blah. Yeah. Um. Let's see what else. Oh, I one of the strategies is about not eating comfort food when you need comfort because actually we we did a bunch of studies of this, which show and they show that comfort food doesn't actually do anything special for you. That wouldn't have happened if you hadn't eaten the comfort food. People think mom's lasagna is going to make them feel um, feel better, but a bag of carrots might make them feel just as yeah or water. Yeah, <laughs> we're nothing. We did it with nothing. Did we do it with water? I can't even remember what our different conditions were, but um, nothing no, comforting. Nothing about worked. Yeah, right, right. I mean, doing nothing was just as good as eating comfort food. So I'm not saying don't eat those foods that are your comfort foods. You should eat them, but don't eat them Expecting thinking comfort. that they're comforting you because you will feel better. But you would have felt better without them, and you're going to give those foods the credit. Right. But that credit is misplaced. Um, and I rather encourage people to eat those foods. To enjoy them, eat those foods when they're feeling good and in you know reasonable amounts. Um, so one of the strategies has to do with savoring and savoring everything. Um, what am I forgetting? They, oh, there's strategies about forming habits. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple that are labeled that. What else? Oh, changing how you think sometimes. Um, yeah, so there's some about, yeah, there's some like the whole healthy labeling and healthy thing. Well, my listeners are always one of the number one things that they say is that they wish that uh, the episodes were longer and that we got much more in depth and, and, um, and that they got to find out more. And so um, fortunately there's a book that all of my listeners can get True. Uh, called secrets from the eating lab, the science of weight loss, the myth of willpower and why you should never diet again. And there will, of course, always be links on the here we are podcast.com oh, website. Awesome. 
Thank you, Tracy Mann, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. And thank you, listeners, for being wonderful, curious people. All right, everybody. I'm very excited this week to announce that I have formed a new partnership with a company called Laughable. Now, uh, Laughable is, right now, they are a podcast app that essentially helps you find different po- different podcasts that you want to hear. So if you hear someone on a podcast that you like, you can go to that person's name and you can find them and hear the other podcasts that they've been on. This is how I basically built my following is being a guest on various podcasts and then people listening to me as a guest on other podcasts. And so let me tell you about why I've decided to partner with this company. So, um, as I've said before, I've been trying to figure out new ways of getting more listeners, which, uh, it's the podcast has been going very strong and we've been gaining new listeners all the time. And thank you guys so much for that. And all the reviews on iTunes and every, and everything else. And I've, I've, I've ran ads. I've, I've, racked my head over brainstorming other ideas and and as i said i'm trying to make the live podcast which you'll hear one uh next week hopefully it should be edited by then uh i'm trying to bring that to more cities i think it's just a more kind of inclusive way of of doing the podcast and it's just more interactive and it's so much fun to do and is also a way for me to kind of uh where i can sell tickets and pay for the the many costs of the podcast and so some uh, let me just give you one of the ideas that i thought of for how to increase listenership so uh, and, and do the podcast live more often so poor ramin nazer who is uh, overworked and underpaid and it does such an amazing job. I, I thought maybe it would be a good idea to have something like a list of every city, um, that I potentially be doing the podcast in live and then directing you guys towards it to put your email down. And then when we reached X number of emails that then I could do a live show there, hoping that you guys would then promoted and come out and blah, blah, blah. And there is a tremendous amount of hurdles in doing that, not just setting up the list in general, but making sure that if that list does fill, that people actually do come out to the exact date specified. Even if people are the most interested, doesn't mean they're going to get a babysitter, et cetera, et cetera. And what happened was Ari Shafir uh, texted me one day who has podcast, the, the skeptic tank, which is a, um, has way more listeners than mine and, and is doing very, it's been around for much, uh, a lot longer than the here we are podcast. He, he told me about this, uh, he, he sent me in the direction of this group called laughable, this new company that, uh, and I, I feel very privileged. I'm, I'm one of the few, um, of, of the partners of these exceptional people like Burt Kreischer of the Burt cast and, uh, Greg Fitzsimmons are all partners with this company now. 
And the reason I'm partnering with them is because uh, you you go on and you find a guest that is so. Say you like hearing me as a guest on various podcasts. Say, uh, say you like the Here We Are podcast, but you also like when I'm a guest talking about some of these science ideas in in my own way. And and I've been a pot, a guest on seventy five plus podcasts. But how how do you find them? This app has it all in one place. I've been going. You can look. Uh, at my at my website, if you go under the tour page, and then if you go to preview, I have a page filled with a bunch of the bigger podcasts that I've done. This is stuff that I'm all I've already been trying to do on my own, which is is a tremendous amount of work. And this app does all of it for me, and it targets you guys specifically. There's a lot of ways to find out um, where listeners are downloading from but this is much more precise and i can figure out where the markets are where i have the most listeners and figure out where to do the podcast live and i can also figure out the parts in the podcast where um uh, where there's like peak listenership and and where people are listening the most and where they aren't where they're kind of rewinding and and uh re re re-listening to um, various ideas so I can start to understand the sorts of things that you guys are interested in learning about. And this is just, honestly, I, I've been turning down um, ideas for, uh, I've had so many people reach out to me for wanting to sponsor the podcast, even things, mostly a bunch of crap that I don't want to sell you guys, but I've even had some products that I honestly believe in that I reluctantly turned down because this podcast is expensive, um, to make. And, and I put a lot of time and effort into this and, uh, I really believe in paying it forward and we are, and we are going to continue to do a charity each week, uh, with, uh, with the, uh, various guests that I have on. Um, but I was trying to figure out other ways to offset my costs. And so if I was going to sell you something, if I, if I wanted to get money from you guys, this is what I do. And I might, I might do this, um, eventually. There are various, products out there where I can have you guys sign up and donate whatever you want per episode or per month or whatever to support me. I have not done that yet. And I am, I might eventually, um, uh, but I, I have not yet. I've been able to uh, keep the cost minimized enough so that I haven't had to do that. But, um, Another how most podcasts are monetized is through ads, selling you guys a bunch of garbage. This partnership, I might not ever make a dime on, <laughs> and and as far as I'm concerned, I probably won't. I might make a fortune on it as well. I I don't think about things in that way. Anytime, anytime someone's like, you could, uh, uh, here's a lottery ticket that you can. 
this is like a, a bunch of like Hollywood nonsense that I've heard for for like 13 years now and I don't take any of it seriously. I don't expect to ever even make a dime off off of this partnership as far as like what they're actually going to pay me. I might and I hope that I do, certainly, but this is what I care about. This app, I believe, has their crap together and they have figured out ways that I can get more listeners. People, you guys, you listeners can hear more, my fans can hear me on other things. So you guys can get more content easily. And also I can figure out ways of targeting the cities where I can do the live podcast the most. So this is the longest spiel that I will ever give about this partnership. I just want you guys to be in the loop of exactly what's going on. If you have questions or comments or anything like that, uh, you, you can always write me at the here we are podcast.com website. And, uh, I, I will, I will uh, try to take into consideration, uh, all of your, um, uh, uh, bits of advice and, and, tried to keep altering the direction of this podcast in a way that will make it the most successful. And right now I really believe that this podcast is going to do, um, some amazing things for, for what we're to take us from what I'm capable of doing right now with the podcast to take it to the next level, to take it to where this is what I want to do. I, I want this podcast to be something where I can get any guest that I want anytime without having to go through the hassle of, of trying to convince people why they should do this podcast and, and sometimes having to settle for, for guests that, uh, where I would rather have someone that is, uh, more of an expert on a given topic that I want to talk about. And this episode was a great example. This is someone that wrote a book, has a food, the food lab. There's a million other researchers that are researching dieting and everything else. And, but, but the guest that you heard today, Tracy Matt is someone who is really an authority in this area. And I want to get more guests like that. And I want to be able to bring this podcast live to you in various areas. And what I'm hoping is that this partnership will lead to more freedom for me. So we are not in any way abandoning the idea of, of, um, promoting charities and paying it forward. And I'm not about to sell you guys a bunch of garbage and a bunch of uh, whatever dating apps or whatever else crap that you have to hear about on every other podcast. I am in a partnership with a company that is not giving me money to sell you guys a bunch of garbage. It's a partnership to make this podcast more successful. This app, I truly believe, is going to change the way podcasting is. I, 
I truly hope that is what they're going to do. And if if uh, if that isn't the case, well, you know, we all took a chance. But they believe in it, and the founder has put his life and his life savings. And I, I've had numerous discussions um, with with the founder over over the phone, and he he has put his life into building this thing, and taken a huge chance on it. And I want to take a chance on it as well because if this podcast app, Laughable, takes off. I think the Here We Are podcast is going to take off even more and is going to have exponential growth and that will make all of the difference. So um, believe me, the next one won't be a 13-minute long <laughs> lecture about Laughable. I just, um, this is about us. Here we are. I want to include you guys on some of the behind the scenes stuff that goes on. I want to involve you guys. I want to get advice from you guys. And that's, that's what this long winded explanation is all about. So please, 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 if you have an iPhone, please download the laughable app and listen to the here we are podcast from there and you can go and hear me on a number of other podcasts like say you may not have known that i have an app or i i one time um led someone through smoking dmt on a podcast and then smoked it myself uh on a podcast called me and paranormal you with ryan singer and this is the kind of app that will direct you toward that. And then you go, hey, this Ryan Singer guy is a weirdo and interesting. I want to hear more about this weird paranormal stuff that he's into, which is a complete and different divergent from the Here We Are podcast, but in uh, as far as topics, but still um, done in this very, very interesting, intelligent way. So uh, something that is very similar but at the same time entirely different and this is a way that you can find that that you might not have otherwise done so please 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 download the laughable app if they are successful the here we are podcast will be more successful as well thank you guys so so much for listening and those of you that listen all the way to the end especially today oh my goodness you are my absolute favorite I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. <laughs> suicide buddies. <laughs> 
That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. <laughs> He's like, I mean, if you yeah. lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> <laughs> That's like literally what happened to Batman. He literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a bat. bat. I'm, a, I'm, I'm a, bat. a bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a rich- I don't know what you want from me. And my, uh, and my a, girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My, uh, my, 